Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Rod, you sound so excited. I know, Rod, you're laughing because obviously you've heard me say it a bunch and now you're we're together here. Um, my buddy, Jeff Rodkey, I'm so thrilled. It's it, for me, whenever I have someone who's actually a friend on the podcast, it's uh, very satisfying because I only put my friends on when they've, uh, and maybe this is something bad about me, but I only put my friends on when they've you know, accomplished something that I feel like you're all gonna enjoy listening to and I'm gonna get something out of the combo. And Rodkey has, has more than done that. Um, Jeff, man, I was like looking at all the stuff that you've done and um, it really is incredible how many books and movies you've written. Um, you know, two or three different series for kids, uh, including the series you're doing now with Kevin Hart, which is a best-selling series. And, uh, and then your new book for adults, which is just coming out and getting rave reviews, which made me so happy. And is a wonderful book, Lights Out in Lincolnwood, about which we will speak. But before that, and I guess still concurrently, um, you're a successful screenwriter. And although you often poor mouth yourself as a screenwriter, the truth is almost nobody gets one screenplay produced. And you have had four screenplays. Well, to be fair, I think I, I poor mouth myself less as a screenwriter than I poor mouth the movies that have my name attached to them. Fine. Uh, Which fine. is, I, you know, that's, I think, the distinction. Um, yeah, you don't like the movies that were made for them. And honestly, looking at them, I don't blame you. But you're, <laughs> you still had, an, you know, Daddy Daycare and RV and Shaggy Dog and uh, one I don't know, Good Luck Charlie. Um, that was a Disney Channel TV movie. But, uh, you know, it's a tremendous amount of content that you created because also... I mean, before Lights Out in Lincolnwood, although you're, it's not really on your website, I guess it is in the about section of your website, um, you helped Al Franken write one or two books. And yes, worked, way back in the day. And worked for uh, Al Franken. You, you, you helped him write Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot, and uh, you were around him and, and all that stuff and, and, and worked with him. And you wrote me... Jeff, uh, a bunch of stuff you wanted to talk about, and I'm, I, I loved it. And by I the way, none of which we need to talk about. I was just, I was trying to make your job easier, but I'm happy no, to discuss but, um, anything. I, I, I really did love um, what I, there are a few things I know that I want to cover. And, and, and one is I really do want to talk about, you know, you wrote me and you said, look, Brian, you always say calculate less, but my career, yours, Rodkey's, is largely, if it's successful, is largely successful because I, I Rodkey, do the opposite. So you want to talk about that a little bit as a starting off point? And I think a way to do that is talk about the 14 unproduced screenplays before your first one like sold or your 14 unsold screen, whatever the thing right. was and how it happened to you and how that changed your process or what that taught you about your own process and about what works. And I think a way to set the table for that is if you talk a little bit about your beginnings and, you know, you went to Harvard, which anyone who listens knows I'm very fascinated by Harvard, but I remember even the first time I ever asked you about it, you were like, yeah, but I came from somewhere not where the other kids was, you know, again, you kind of pour them out the fact that you got to go there. But 
Could you just talk about who you were in high school, what your ambitions were, and what led you on your way, and 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 use that to segue into how you found screenwriting and and how it was tough. And I know you've been thinking about this, so you, you can just talk for a while. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a town, uh, Freeport, Illinois, which is about twenty five thousand people, uh, surrounded by farmland, uh, a few hours from Chicago, and. Um, it was kind of like my family were kind of transplants. And the one, the one thing, I think the thing that ultimately, the reason I wound up at Harvard was I, I came from a family who, uh, they, we weren't terribly well connected to, you know, any kind of like an establishment, but my, my, it, everybody valued education on both sides of the family. So I think kind of unusually for somebody who's my age, I was born in 1970, all four of my grandparents attended college. And uh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think one of the one of the one of my grandmothers did not finish college. I think because she met my grandfather, who eventually became a, a history professor, and they got married. But she, you know, she she at least attended a couple of years of college. And so so, and both of my parents had graduate degrees. And my, you know, my father was an attorney. My mother was a school teacher, uh, taught English in the, in the public school system in Freeport. And. Um, so that kind of like the thing that was, was instilled in me growing up was like education is very important. And also you have to work your ass off to get into the best possible college, which was, which now I'm like, you know, I live in New York city. Now, everybody I know is like, and it's actually sad. You go out to dinner with people who if, have kids who are between the ages of 16 and 18, all they can talk about is college applications, <laughs> but Freeport, Illinois, it wasn't quite like that except um, it kind of wasn't my family. And so that was very important. And I did, a, I, I did a lot of extracurriculars in high school, but the thing that I really loved was writing for the school newspaper. And, you know, when I started out, I would write like the same articles, like everybody gets assigned like articles about scholarships that are so fucking boring that even the kid right. who won the scholarship yeah. does not want to read the article, right? Like, but, um, but the, the great thing about a high school newspaper is there's almost never enough news to fill it. So it's, there, there's always a struggle, like, and it came out every month, there was always a struggle just to literally get eight pages worth of articles. And uh, a few months in, I started my sophomore year, uh, we literally, we just, we needed another article. And I, I, I watched a lot of Looney Tunes growing up. And I, and I had this kind of like thing in my head. I was like, well, what if, what if the coyote caught the roadrunner? Huh. Like, why, the, why can't that happen? Like, what would happen if he did? And I, and I wrote an article and it was like, literally, it's like, what would happen? It was gaming it out. Like, what happens if Coyote catches a roadrunner? And it runs in the paper. And the, you know, the, the life-changing thing that happened was kids liked it and like came up to me in the hallway and were like, that was really funny. And that was the thing. That was like, that was what made me want to be a writer from like that point on. It was that sort of like you create something and you put it out there and, and an audience reacts to it and likes it. And that was the thing that was addictive, which by the way is a little bit, it's kind of a dangerous thing too, because there's a downside to that, right? Because you're just entirely doing it to seek approval from other people. <laughs> well, yeah, were you funny kid? Yeah, but funny in a way like um, more kind of maybe obnoxious funny and also funny like uh, kids, Freeport, Illinois, like not everybody got the jokes. It was a very, um, you know, like I, 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 I had a sense of humor that was a little too, uh, like, for example, like I wrote once, uh, I wrote an article for the, this, the paper once that was, um, uh, the headline was School Water Fountain is Neat. And it was, uh, it was a parody, uh, it was a parody uh, of a news article. 
And the, the joke was that we're, there's so, there's so little going on in the school yeah, that we wrote about a water fountain and, and, but it, and it was written in a very sort of stilted, you know, formal, like it, it quoted senior administration officials about yeah. the water fountain. And I thought this was hilarious. And the day it came out, like kids came up to me in the hallway, not a single kid was like, Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I saw what you're doing there. Instead they were like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever read in my life. Right. Why did they make you do that? Did they make you, did somebody assign that to you? That is that Jesus, that's stupid. And then the crazy thing was, the, because it was because it was just a joke. I had literally gotten the, the quotes from people were just kids in the journalism room, right. and I was like, "Give me a quote about the water fountain." And like the, the I think it was the vice president of the student council wrote an angry letter to the editor talking about how um, the, the articles in the newspaper didn't reflect the wider sentiments of the student body. And and for example, this article about the water fountain only quoted people in the journalism department class. It was like, so it was it, like shit like that was like, you know, it, it, I, I learned pretty quickly. Like I had to, uh, you have to modulate your, what you're writing for an audience or people won't get it. Well, it sets you up well for dealing with executives in Hollywood. I would say that uh, to for, prepare yourself for them to not get it a bunch of the time. Yeah, well, for both. Yeah. For, and again, for both better and worse, because the, um, you know, the thing when, and, and when I got out of, when I got out of college, like the, it, it, I think if you're going to be a professional writer, like y- you have to satisfy two imperatives that are often in conflict. And, and one of them is like, you have to write the thing you're excited about, right? Cause yes. otherwise it's just like yes. waking up in the morning is sheer misery if you're not actually excited about what you're writing. But at the same time, you have to get paid for it if you want to do it for a living. And so like my whole career has been like trying to find that overlap in the Venn diagram between like, what am I excited to write? And, and what would people actually pay me to write? And the, and the thing was like, in my early twenties, what I really wanted to write was political satire. And, uh, and, and I got as far as like, I got a job, you know, I, I was writing jokes for Al Franken for a couple of years and I was trying to do other things on my side and sell like magazine pieces and stuff. And, you know, it was one of these things where like, it's, it's really difficult, uh, when, you, when nobody knows who you are to sell a magazine piece. So I would, it, it would be like, you know, work your ass off for a couple of months and manage to play something somewhere that's like 750 words and you get a couple of hundred bucks for it. And, and I was like, Jesus, this is hard. And meanwhile, it's like all my, you know, friends of mine from college were like then writing for sitcoms and, you know, and making six figure salaries. And it was like, right. this isn't, this is not working out for me. And, um, and I realized at some point, like there are no political satirists in America. Like, that's not a job. Like it was, this was the mid nineties. So it was like, I was like, okay, if I count up all the political satirists in America, there was Al, there was Michael Moore, PJ O'Rourke. PJ O'Rourke. Who was the person, by the way, that was what made me want to be a writer. Like a lot, like reading his stuff in Rolling Stone in the eighties, when he kind of took over for Hunter Thompson and he was doing like, I think they, you know, his official title was like foreign affairs. Course I mean, he was like a right, more center right version of Hunter basically. Yeah. And he was, he was kind of, and it was, I guess, sort of appropriate for Rolling Stone in the eighties. Right. He was like, a, he was kind of right wing, but he was more, more than being right wing. He was just snarky. Right. Like it was, you know, I, I, I think the, the first thing I read of his was about like the Beirut hostage crisis in 85. And, you know, and it's the kind of thing you'd read the whole thing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't come away from it with any sense of PJ's political leanings. Sure. It was all about, you know, it was all kind of situational stuff, but it was hilarious. Let's just slow down for one second, because we're going to get to how you decided the way you're going to approach this. But I have a few questions. One, growing up in that town and having the pressure on you to succeed academically, and then you find this outlet that you like. 
um, being funny, writing funny stuff, and you like the rewards. You were also listening to a lot of heavy metal music, right? And had certain. It was that was my birthright. I, I grew up in Illinois in the eighties, <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah, I mean, Ario Speedwagon concerts must have just been insane then. And yeah, Ario but, Speedwagon was just. I thought of them as like the band, that, you know, just a lightweight band that kind of sucked. But they're from right there. Them and Cheap Trick are like the closest band. Cheap Trick is from Rockford. Cheap Trick is actually from, because Freeport was within Rockford's athletic conference. Right. Like Rockford was where we went when we needed to go to the mall or we wanted to see a movie that wasn't playing on the, the three but, screens. But, well, what I'm, well, here's what I'm asking about, because I think it tracks with sort of like where you then found yourself, which is, it seems to me you did have outlets to get crazy from time to time, but you would rein it in to do your, like the school stuff. Uh, or did that not happen until college where you were partying, dealing with- Oh no, I was, uh, I, I was a drunk in high school. <laughs> well, but I was a very compartmentalized drunk. Like we would, um, I, I, I never worked harder by the way in my life than I worked in high school, but I would, I would work incredibly hard Sunday through Thursday and Friday and Saturday would get blind drunk. So you just wouldn't work on the weekends, really? Unless there was a, unless there was a tennis tournament or a debate tournament. I mean, right. I would on Sundays. But. Right. And, and uh, I mean, that's wild to me. I mean, was the pressure, was it a release valve from the pressure? Like, were you, because how did you square, I guess, how did you square it with your ambition at the time? I never really, I never saw those things as being in any kind of tension. And I was also able to like, I, I was able to compartmentalize it to the point where it was like, it never affected my grades. It never affected, you know, I, I still accomplished everything I needed to accomplish. Yes. I was just, you know, I just drank too much on the weekends. Yes. And, and, and when you got to college, were you, because I was thinking when you said the thing that the kids didn't understand the, um, joke about the water fountain, it, it, the first thing I was going to say to you is, well, they must not have been reading National Lampoon um, or watching. That was, Lamp National Lampoon was hard to find in Freeport. Right. Or watching SCTV. That's what I was going to say, because for me, like National Lampoon, I'm four years older than you, but for me, National Lampoon gave me the roadmap into understanding a certain kind of, you know, Letterman, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and just national lampoon and then like the white album by national lampoon those gave me the tools to understand what you're talking about right but I'm, I'm guessing so when you got to harvard was the lampoon which was where the national lampoon came from was the lampoon on your mind is that something you want oh, yeah to from like from pretty like i pretty early in high school i realized like that was a thing that existed I, and partly it was i don't know what year it was i think it was 86 they did a usa today parody that wound up the only the only headline from it I remember was like refrigerator Perry hit leaks deadly Freon yeah it, that was it, it was like a little like up in the corner it was for the like sports section yeah, awesome. um, yeah. and that actually got sold I remember buying that in like my hometown convenience store I don't know how it, it wound up there but I, I, I bought it and it and so I knew of it through that, and I also knew of it through the the, the Lord of the Rings parody that they wrote in '73 yeah. that stayed in print for decades. Uh, that was called Board of the Rings, and that was actually given 
my much more sort of uh, culturally well-connected cousins uh, gave that to someone in my family as a, as a Christmas gift one year in the 80s. So I knew the Harvard Lampoon existed. And from the, from the point at which I started to become conscious of like where I wanted to go to college, I very specifically wanted to go to Harvard to write for the Lampoon. And did you get on the Lampoon right away? No, I got, I got in the Lampoon as late as you could possibly get in the Lampoon and still be on it, um, which was second semester of my junior year. And what happened was, uh, the thing about Harvard is it's, it's a very elitist institution and there is, it's like nesting dolls of elitism in the sense that like once you get there, you can't just decide you're going to write for the Lampoon. You have to be elected into the yeah. Lampoon. Which is, a, which is a three-stage process where it's like, you know, you write three pieces, you submit three pieces, there's a cut. Everybody who makes the cut gets to go to a cocktail party. Um, after the second cut, there's a second cocktail party, and then they have a, a, the, the third cut is elections, and, and that's when you get on. And my fall of my freshman year, so I submitted three pieces, and I made it past the first cut, and I got to go to the cocktail party, oh which, is where, which is where I met Jeff Schaefer. Right. who is now uh, the head writer on, on Dave uh, on course. FX. Uh, he's done Curb Your Enthusiasm, Jeff, um, Seinfeld. Alec. I mean, Jeff, Alec, and Mandel, and Dave Mandel. together, right? Yes. And, and, and I eventually, uh, so it was, yeah, they were, they were sort of a writing threesome for a while, doing movies and Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, and, and Seinfeld. It was, it was Jeff Schaefer, Alec Berg, and Dave Mandel. And so, so I met Schaefer that fall of freshman year. Mandel was in, who was a year older than us. Uh, Berg and, and Schaefer were both a year older than me and Mandel. And, uh, you know, Alec Berg now is like, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, Barry on HBO, also right. did Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm. Mandel is, uh, won two Emmys for, for being a showrunner on Veep with Saturday Night Live, Seinfeld. And Schaefer, and Schaefer did the great, the show everyone loves about fantasy football. The League, yeah. The League, yeah. yeah was which was terrifyingly, the thing about The League was I, I could only watch about a season of it because it was such a pure distillation of Schaefer's personality that it became uncomfortable after a while. But, but basically those three guys who you interacted with who were on the Lampoon became just huge rock stars in the business. I mean, they're as successful as you could ever want to be. Yeah, and they're all great at what they do. I'll say they're great at what they do. Yeah. But, so you meet Schaefer and what happens? So, I, so I, meet, I meet Schaefer. I also at that same cocktail party met Stuart Burns, who eventually when I was in Los Angeles for a brief and disastrous period after graduation was my writing partner and has now been in the Simpsons for about I don't know, over well over a decade. Right. Um, and, uh, and had been a Futurama before that. So I, I met those guys, but I didn't get past the second cut. And, um, but I tried again at, you know, the second half is because you could do it once a semester. So for fall of freshman year, I got past the first cut, but not the second cut. Spring of freshman year, I got past the first. I got to stop. I got to stop you because one of the things I really am focused on lately, especially after this year, is talking about how people process disappointment and rejection. Because people who've ended up building a career, despite they learn, I think, how to negotiate with those kinds of a particular kind of failure that's a that can feel like a rejection of the self. So can can you just talk a little bit about? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'll we'll get to a that. Little bit about how you received that, but then a lot of people, you know, they don't try again. That lampoon thing is crushing because it says either you're not funny or we don't like you. So it, talk talk about that, please. I didn't try again. I quit okay. after that. 
I just, and, and it was also, this, it was one of those things like literally at this point, you know, I'm like 18, 18 years old. I had never gone after something hard and not gotten Oh God. Yeah. And so that was the first time I, well, the, the, actually the, the rejection letter I got, um, fall of freshman year, I set fire to. Um, so that was, that was where my oh, head was at. They wrote your rejection. The, the lampoon wrote your rejection and you set fire to it. And I set fire to it. Yeah. All, I, I only, no, I was, I, I burned part of it. There were like cigarette, there were cigarettes. I still have it today oh because my God. I wanted, I, I wanted to keep, it was, it was actually, it was very interesting. It was written by a guy named Dave Samuels who became, is a very, actually a very prominent journalist now. And, um, and the last line, because he had discovered that his, his little sister was living in the freshman dorm above me, the last line of the rejection letter was, and if you ever lay a hand on my sister, I'll come to your room and kill you. Oh my God. I had already hooked up with her. <laughs> we were like dating at the point at which I got that letter. So you get this letter. So I get this letter. So it was, it was rejected and I did not handle it well, but I tried again the next semester and oh, I, said, and I didn't quit. Oh, you quit after the next rejection. So after the second semester, because I didn't, I wasn't proceed, I wasn't progressing. Right. I got right. past the first cut both times, but I didn't get past the second cut. I got pissed off. And, and meanwhile, by the way, Dave Mandel, who is possibly the most successful comedy writer of my generation. Um, Dave Mandel was in my freshman dorm. We became roommates and at sophomore year. And, and Dave was, Dave was doing the same thing, but he didn't even get past the first cut either time. And I have to say this about like, like his early piece, I read his early pieces. They were not very good. Oh, like it fine. wasn't, he's, he's, he's brilliant. David may be the smartest person I know. He's, he's also possibly the funniest person I know. Right. His early pieces sucked, <laughs> but he didn't quit. He kept going and he, and you know, so, so sophomore year he kept, you know, he kept trying and he went through like two and a half years of it. So he didn't get on, he didn't get on the staff until fall of his junior year. Right. And he finally gets on fall of junior year. And, and I remember, I literally remember because at this point, because what I basically had then done was um, I just redirected all my energies into drugs and alcohol. And so that's what you did with the rejection. You just that was what I, well, no, to be up. fair, I was getting fucked up well before that. Right. It was just, I mean, it was, it, and when I look like I'm actually, I'm a little ashamed of my college career because like the one thing I did consistently for about four years, uh, I played rugby and right. the, I, I played rugby basically for two reasons. And one of them was, um, uh, I hadn't played football in high school and, and I felt the shame of having grown up in the Midwest and not having played in the high school football team. Amazing. So I, I needed to prove something about my masculinity by playing rugby. And the, but the other reason was they had a keg after practice every Thursday night. So if you were on the rugby team, yes, you knew where you were drinking every Thursday. <laughs> wow, that's dedication to get bruised it, and beaten up like that. So well, it was so also I'm, honestly it was tremendous. It was a lot of fun too. I don't know. Yeah, when when you got the. I, yeah, I had good friends in college who played rugby. I was happy to stay far away from rugby. Um, but uh, I didn't want to get, I was not tough enough. For me, tennis and basketball, that's enough. Uh, that's all I want to play. Um, but did you internalize the rejection as uh, I'm not good enough? Or did you say to yourself, I can figure it out? Like, how did, which one of those things happened? 
I mean, there's sort of the conscious and the unconscious process, yeah. right? Like consciously, it was kind of like, well, fuck those people. Unconsciously, it was probably a little bit different. And, and I do remember, like, I don't know, like sophomore year, I don't know what kind of, what my professional aspirations were, but by, by junior year, by the point at which, by the point at which I tried again junior year, I, I wanted to be a writer. I knew I still, I knew I still wanted to be a writer. Was that because Mandel said to you, try again, I'm on now? No, well, that's what happened. That's why I tried again, essentially because Mandel, who at this point was, you know, was probably my closest friend in school. Uh, I remember he literally left, um, he left the, the, the initiation party at the Lampoon. He went and found me and he said, you have to do this. That's awesome. And then he turned around and went back to the party. <laughs> it was literally, he, he left for, like, literally he came in, was like, I, I just, you, you got to do it. You have oh, to do fantastic. it. Do this. And then he left again. And then I, and I did it again. Um, second half of junior year and made it in, I think probably by the skin of my teeth. Um, you know, I got through, I, I got through both of the cuts. And the was Berg the president of the Lampoon that year? No, Berg, Berg had gotten, Berg never held like an office. None of them held ever held. Well, I thought somehow thought Alec did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but so, but you were on it with those guys. Yeah, but I was also friends with them because we were also all four of us. We lived in the same residential house, and um, we all belonged to the same social club. Right. So I so like Schaefer even at that point like Schaefer was also a very close friend of mine at that point, um, right. and and so was Berg. So like I knew I knew all those guys and was friends with all those guys independently of the land. It's an incredible assortment of people who all got to go make so much stuff. It's really an amazing thing. It's even crazier if you expand it out a little. Like the, the people in my in my 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 initiation group at the Lampoon were like Josh Lieb, who was running the Tonight Show and News Radio uh, at various points. Uh, Brian Kelly, who's been in The Simpsons for about fifteen or twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, Brian's roommate, this who got on the semester after that, was Scott Silveri, who uh, who ran know. Friends for a while. And um, that God, I can't. There's a it, he's, he, he he runs a sitcom on ABC now. Um, I don't know if it's still in the air. Anyway, it's crazy and, too. Also, like, and, and, oh. and Robert Carlock, who did uh, Thirty Rock, and um, and the, and Kimmy Schmidt, uh, and Mark O'Keefe, who wrote the scripts for uh, Bruce Almighty and Click. That is just some incredible collection of dudes too. All I'm white probably missing some people. It's all, all white, white men, guys. Right? It's all, all white it's men. All white guys. Yeah, yeah which is which is kind of appalling. Built. I mean, that was it. It was a factory. To, white man of a certain type could go from uh, Harvard and the Lampoon. There was a pipeline. And all those guys are so talented. I'm not knocking their talent. Another white man who benefited at the same time. But it is fascinating that that was like just the, or fascinating is the wrong word. It's, um, it's indicative of just the way people thought and acted back then. Well, but the thing that's weird about it, there were, there were women who were writing you know, for the Lampoon. And, and some of them, like Maya Forbes, who then who wrote for Larry Sanders and does, I think, writes and co-directs with her husband, Wally Waladarski, like some like indie films. Maya Forbes was a couple of years older than me. Stacey Lip was about, I think, three years older than me. And she was unmarried with children back in the day. And I don't know what she's done recently or if she even stayed in the business. Some people don't even, the crazy thing, like Andy Robin, who was a guy who was two years older than me, um, he was a producer on Seinfeld and he's now a doctor in New Hampshire. Awesome. Like Seinfeld oh, ended. Oh, and, what a good choice. Like what a great choice. I, I, yeah, he kind of went out on top. You know? Yeah, what a, it's a fabulous, like it's a fabulous choice. So, okay, you get on 
And when you get on the lampoon, does it give you a certain kind of validation? Is that how you met the senator who wasn't yet a senator? I eventually met uh, Al because he was leaving Saturday Night Live. <laughs> he was him being a senator was way out of you know, right. I was nowhere near yes. the picture at that point. This is like 90. well, the Rush Limbaugh. Book. No, I, I started working with yeah, Al because the, the Rush the Rush Limbaugh book helped though. Yeah, but he wasn't. It wasn't like he was leaving SNL and he was like, first I'm going to write this this right. book and then I'm going to become a senator. It wasn't. It wasn't remotely like that. But but he needed. He was leaving SNL to write. Uh, to write the book, to write Rush Limbaugh's a big fat idiot, and he needed a research assistant. And at the time, so this is this is we're fast forwarding to like this was '95. I had like I I'd, I'd spent some time in LA trying to be a sitcom writer. I just failed miserably, hated it. Oh, so no, let's go slow then, because this is the stuff people are really interested in. So you leave, you go out of the Lampoon. A couple of those guys had gone ahead to Hollywood and made their inroads, and then yeah. Mandel immediately went to Saturday Night Live. And didn't Berg and Schaefer too, or no? No, Berg and Schaefer, Berg and Schaefer had a string of like, they had like initially had like this weird luck where they, they kept, they kept getting on to, to sitcoms that would get like six episode orders and then never air. Like they, they did like a series of literally like two or three sitcoms where they were staff writers. And then, you know, the show never even aired. One of them was a Jeff Garland vehicle. Um, and then they ended up going, uh, they worked at Conan for a year. Right. Uh, very early on in the, in the Conan O'Brien show. So they did that for a year. They'd moved back to Los Angeles and then they came back when they got the job on Seinfeld. And what about you? So, so, but you go out to, you go out to LA and what does that mean you go out to LA? Like you didn't have like a lot of family money to support yourself. Like your no. dad was a lawyer, but it's not like they were, they were paying no, my life. dad was like the, the public defender in, you know, Freeport, Illinois. It wasn't like he was making. That's know. what I'm saying. So, right. so what does it look like when you go out to LA? Like what, what does that mean even? What do people think of that in your life and, and all that? <laughs> the funny thing was someone from my hometown, I have no idea who it was. I wouldn't say who it was even if I knew. They, they, they saw my mom in the grocery store about a year, you know, right after I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. And they were like, well, what's your son doing? And she said, oh, he's gone out to Los Angeles to try to, you know, be a, a comedy writer. And, and the woman's response was, but don't the Jews run that business? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Perfect. So, you know, that was the, yeah. That was we the, let you in though. We let a couple of you in. Like every year, a couple of you guys can get in. Berg is, well, it's the funny thing about the land. Berg is not a Berg. Berg's not Jewish. No, Berg is not Jewish. Berg is Gentile. Um, he's Dutch. And uh, the, the, the thing about the Lampoon, it was like 95% Jewish or Irish. Right. There were a lot of Irish and there were, and, you know, I mean, mostly it was, it was, it was mid, probably majority Jewish and then about 40% Irish. What show the lampoon or show? Or, yeah. The lampoon. No, the lampoon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it turns out show business, you know, no matter, there is no area in which we just to say it for anyone listening and somewhere in the country doesn't know when they say the Jews run Hollywood, the, the Jews have never really run Hollywood. <laughs> like, uh, we, uh, at the very, very beginning, a couple of guys who were Jewish were smart enough to start those studios. But like, uh, there's always been more of other people than Jews. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, just numerically, there have. That's what I'm saying. Just numerically, yeah. it's like what are they? Three percent of the population or something? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. in Freeport, Illinois, there weren't enough for a minion. Right. That's funny. You so know? don't the Jews run Hollywood? So go ahead. So, but you're out there. So what does it feel well, like to you? Well, it was. What happened was, I, I when I graduated from college, I didn't know. I didn't really know what I 
I, I wasn't sure I wanted, because I didn't like sitcoms. That was the thing. If you went out to Los Angeles, you're going to write sitcoms. I didn't like sitcoms. And I don't know, I don't know if you, how much you remember about television in the early 90s. It was terrible. Wait, you mean if you went out there as a lampoon person, as a comedy writer, you were going to write sitcoms. So a lot of people went out there. You know, Levine went out there at the same time uh, to, to write movies. You know what I mean? To be an assistant and try to write dramas. But you yeah. were going out there to be a sitcom writer. Right. And, and there was, and, and I didn't realize there was like a spec market for features until I got out to Los Angeles and discovered that such a thing what, existed. What jobs did you take, Jeff? Um, uh, like Princeton Review, um, hauling heavy boxes in Pasadena. Uh, I, I got it. I got a job writing, um, for a, a, the video game of where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Sure. Nice. Like, uh, you know, they, they needed like, like, you know, little geog like I wrote like hundreds of geography clues for it. Um, I sold a, a couple of pieces to like a, a, a teen mag, like a couple of comedy pieces to a teen magazine back in New York. Um, but it was mostly like you know, it, it was uh, it was hard, and and it and it and I did not like I didn't like it at all. Also, I skipped a bit after grad. So after graduation. Um, I, I worked for the, this is another, this is one of the great things other than the Lampoon about Harvard that was not available anywhere else was the Let's Go Travel series, right. which was an entirely student run, you know, series of travel guide books, which I, I don't even know the extent to which they exist now, but they were enormous in the like the nineties. Like everybody, everybody who went to Europe and, you know, and backpacked around had a copy of Let's Go Europe yeah. back in the nineties. And, um, and so I worked for Let's Go first as a researcher in the field between junior and, and senior year. I, I, I did a research thing in Germany. And then as an editor uh, that summer after graduation uh, in, in, in Cambridge. And, and at some point, like I, I was thinking I was either going to go to New York and try to get an entry level job in publishing. Right. Or maybe I would go to Los, you know, and then at some, at some point I decided I was going to go to Los Angeles, but then I got an opportunity to uh, to teach English for a semester in Eastern Germany, which was like wow. was like right after reunification. So I spent a semester teaching English in Magdeburg, which is like East German Cleveland, um, and just a very very post socialist. While I was there, uh, but so I did that, and then um, came out sort of so about a year after I graduated, I I, I went out to Los. I cleared out my you know, my, my home, my, my childhood bedroom, because my parents were retiring and moving to Oregon. Um, and then I drove out to Los Angeles and then Bergen Schaefer had, a, and I stayed in their couch and they were in slobs. So like their couch was infested with fleas. Um, it was, it was really unpleasant. You, you went out and you were going to stay on their couch. That was the idea. And you stayed on their couch. Well, I stayed on their couch until I found an apartment. Yeah. So I was on the couch for like a month. Wow. Uh, which was long enough to get, uh, I, I think I counted at 1.67 flea bites on my lower legs because that's what slobs those guys were. But what are you doing when you get to LA? Like, but any, but, what, what are you doing to hustle? Like, what is that? What, so I, I've had people ask me this, like, what does it mean you move to LA, but what do you do to try to like get something going for yourself? Well, this was, this was the, where the sort of, you know, the, the privilege of being in the lampoon made it kind of easy, right? Like we, I had, and I, and I decided like Stu, Stu Burns and I, who, as I said, like is now a Simpsons writer, we decided we were going to, we were going to be a writing team, um, which didn't work that well. Cause we didn't, we, we had, we did make very, very different sensibilities. Um, but it made more sense for both of us to be trying to find a job together 
than separately and competing for whatever few jobs there were. The fact that we were from the Lampoon, that we knew all these other people who already had agents and that we had, you know, we came there with spec scripts already written. Like I had the Simpsons spec, Stu had a Mad About You spec. So we got, you know, we got an agent within a few months. We went on a lot of informational meetings. Um, Stu was temping. I was teaching Princeton Review. Uh, and that, it, and, but I also had enough, I had enough free time. I actually, I, I wound up with another college friend who was not in the Lampoon, Adam Prince. Uh, I, I, I wrote a couple of spec, spec feature scripts with him over the course of that year. So, so I got the experience of what, you know, I got the experience of writing, of writing a fe feature. You, you got the experience of trying to write a feature. At least, you know, I, I got that experience under my belt. So what do you hate about LA when you're there? Everything. <laughs> like, except the weather. The weather was great. Um, uh, although it was, it was also, it was a very apocalyptic year to be out there because there were, there were, in the fall, there were brush fires in Malibu. And then I was actually out there for the Northridge earthquake in January. Yeah, that sucks. Um, and literally I got thrown out of bed and had a minute of like, you know, standing in the doorway in my bedroom thinking like, am I going to plunge into the parking garage? Which honestly, at the time I was having such a miserable time. I was like, that might actually be a plus. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was, I was like, yeah. I'm like, if this is my time, it's fine. I'm like, you know, and uh, so, but I, but I, I, and I hated it from the, from the, there was something of just culturally about it that just didn't agree with me. I remember I, uh, Bergen Schaefer had gone on this business trip to, to San Francisco and I picked him up at the airport and I remember they get in the car and I said, I'm leaving. Like, I hate this. I'm, I'm, I, I hadn't signed the lease yet. This was like three or four weeks after I, I got right. to LA. And they, they persuaded me to stay for a year. And then I ultimately, I left as soon as the lease expired after that first year. So I think I was there for a total of 13 months. And, uh, and then I, and I, so I went to Washington, D.C. after that. Here's, here's a question. Um, when, what was it like when one of you guys would have some measure of success during that first year or two? Were people happy for each other? Was it a sense of competition or was it a sense of camaraderie mostly? It was, I mean, I would say it was more camaraderie, but there wasn't a whole lot of success happening at that point. It wasn't like um, Stu and I sold, um, we sold three scripts to Beavis and Butthead of which they produced two. Amazing. So we eventually did that. And I've, literally that's like the high water mark of my, my pop cultural cliche. Like I, I'll never be that cool again. <laughs> as I was at, at, at 23 having. Yeah, that's the coolest thing ever. So when you sold Beavis and Butthead, Jeff, did that give you a sense of validation? It, I, it, probably, it probably did briefly, um, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. The thing is like, you know, there were hundreds of episodes of Beavis and Butthead uh, and we ultimately only, you know, wrote two that wound up in the air. So it wasn't like we were a huge part of the Beavis and Butthead universe. How much did Mike Judge rewrite your episodes? You know, they didn't, they didn't rewrite it that much. Not much at all. There was, a, there, there was not that much rewriting. It, it came out like I was actually very happy with how it came out. Um, the other thing about it that I should say, we were paid uh, 500 bucks per episode, which <laughs> we split. So I, you know, I got paid 250 bucks an episode. <laughs> Awesome. So it was, it might've felt more validating if, if it, it, you know, contributed more than like 25% of my rent for that month. 
Right. No, uh, that makes total. But, you know, and again, it's like that's the thing about writing. It's like you have to you have to actually, if you want to be professional, you have to make a living at it. When did you start thinking of it that way? Like, did you th when did you start realizing like, oh shit, I actually have to, I really have to figure out how to calculate how to make a living at this. Was that always what you were thinking? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, because because there's just there's a you know there's a basic math to you know to finance. Um, which was, which is why moving to Washington, when I, I moved to Washington, DC after LA and the thing that was fantastic about it was like, I got a room in a group house and I was only paying 250 bucks a month in rent. And I got a job as in doing economic policy research, uh, for this like government save money on the, on that 10 bucks an hour because my, because my cost of living was so low in DC. And, and then that's how you then got hooked up. How did you then get hooked up with Frank and to write his book with him? So I had, I, I was, I was in DC for about a year and I spent a fair amount of time trying to, trying to sell other, um, you know, other writing on the side. Uh, I had a little bit of success, but not that much. Um, and then Al was looking for a research assistant and he knew Dave Mandel who, you know, uh, who he'd been writing with on Saturday Night Live and right. Dave recommended me for it. And I had this weird, combination on my resume of like comedy writing and public policy research. Right. So it was this weird thing where it was actually, it was like, I, I, I was actually perfectly qualified for that job. And so you, you met Al and you started doing that and did you love it? Did you love that experience? It was fantastic. Yeah, it was great. And especially like, like it was cause Al is, you know, who is now, you know, to this day, a good friend of mine and sort of the closest thing to a mentor I've ever had. Um, he was great to work for. And was sort of, you know, was really, was, is, is a very collaborative person because he spent, you know, most of his professional life had been spent either as half of a comedy team with, with Tom Davis or yes. writing for SNL. So he was, he was very used to writing with other people. And, you know, I started out as the research assistant, but like by the end of the book, I was sort of sitting next to him as he was writing and kind of co-writing it with him because that was sort of, that was his process. He kind of needed somebody else around. And then when the book came out and did well, he hired me, he put me on salary um, to just to be available and just write whatever he was writing at the time, which was everything from corporate speaking engagements to uh, he did some on-air stuff for Politically Incorrect uh, on Comedy Central during the 1996 conventions, um, for which I got an Emmy nomination, which was kind of awesome. And, uh, and then ultimately, the last thing I did with him was he had a, a a short-lived NBC sitcom called Late Line, uh, which was sort of like a, you know, a comedy version of Nightline. It was like a workplace comedy. How, how old were you then, Jeff? Uh, 26. 26. And in your mind at that point, did you think to yourself, okay, I'm on my way, this is working? Yes, because I was making a living. But I also had, I also, I also had the sense that like I needed to sort of establish myself independently. Um, and so I, I wrote a spec script, a spec screenplay on the side, which was something I had, you know, I'd written, I'd co-written some screen, some feature-length screenplays back in Los Angeles with another writing partner. And um, so I wrote that and, and that wound up selling and that was the fall of 1997. And so that was when I stopped working for Al and became a full-time screenwriter. What was that called? It was called Dave the Ox. Uh, um, the, the, it was named after Dave the Ox Oxmeyer, the uh, winningest coach in Texas high school football history. 
Nice. It was a it was a, it was a Texas football comedy which I wrote despite not having played football or ever visited Texas. <laughs> it somehow it somehow worked out. And the thing about it, it was a um, it, um, it it came kind of close to getting made. Uh, there was a point where David Merkin, who had been head writer on The Simpsons for a while, was going to direct it. They were they were actually they went as far as they had a production office and they were scouting locations. Um, but, and this is Universal that bought it. This is like 97, 98. And the problem was it was, uh, and I don't even know, I, I almost, it was the tail end of the spec boom, right? So it was like, you know, studios were buying a lot of screenplays. And I really do feel like if I had written it a year later, it probably wouldn't have sold because it was, it was kind of dark and weird. Like, um, Ultimately, like, you know, the climax of the movie, the team loses the big game and, and a, a mob of angry townspeople hang the coach under the goalposts. <laughs> it was like, it was fucking dark. I used to call it, uh, like, I, I used to say it was like Apocalypse Now meets Hoosiers. And did the, did the studio try to get you to change the ending? They never tried to get me to change the ending. But what happened was, um, you know, things were moving along and they were trying to cast the lead and they were out to, like, at one point they were out to Matthew Perry and it seemed like he was going to do it. But then it turned out he was just using that project as leverage to get a better deal on Three to Tango with Nev Campbell. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, but, but at one point, the marketing department, this is all relayed to me secondhand. At one point, the marketing department came in and, like, slashed the budget by, like, millions and millions of dollars. And I think rightfully so, because the thing about that, the thing about that movie, and, you know, I, I wrote it not knowing any, not really having studied the movie business and never asking myself, like I didn't calculate at all. I was just, I have this idea and it was something that had been kicking around in my head for years. Like it was, it had started out as an idea I had like senior year of, of college that I'd just been sort of toying with for five years after, before I finally wrote it. And um, the thing about it was, it was like, it was a satire of sports comedies. So, and the team loses the big game, which is like, no successful sports comedy outside of the Bad News Bears, I think, has ever really done that. And it was the kind of thing where it was funny. Um, it would have been really funny to people who don't like sports comedies and really annoying to people who do. But the people who don't like sports comedies never would have gone to see it because the marketing would have made it look like a sports comedy. So the natural audience... Or they might not have gotten the joke because they didn't right. have tropes. Yeah, that, that too. But, but basically, ultimately, like, I think the natural audience for that was, a, was very, very small. And it, it might have worked as a low-budget, you know, independent feature, but it, it probably never had any business being a studio comedy in the first place. And, huh. um, you know, and the, and, the, and the process of that was it, it was educational in, in both a good and a bad way in the sense that I started to realize that, like, if you want to get a movie made, you have to write the kind of thing that the marketing department is going to sign off on. Um, and the other problem with it, by the way, is it, it was a, it was a, it was a screen, it was a story that was very plot driven. And I don't want to, I don't, I won't get into the whole sort of three act structure of it, but it was like, it was probably the best plot of, you know, I wrote about 25 screenplays, probably might be still the best plot I, I ever wrote. And, but the problem with it was that the lead was not carrying all the comedy of the movie. The lead was sort of the straight man. Sure. He was the straight man around which all the insanity was revolving because the insanity was really it contained in this small town that was way too obsessed about its football team. But I have to, I have to, I have to stop you too. I can't let that one statement, as you know, just go unchecked because I don't even which statement. <laughs> well, because I've never once thought about what the marketing department can sell. <laughs> 
So that I think we we should just talk out that neither are like because you you said in a, a declarative way, and I know it's the way that you've articulated to me. You think about this stuff, which is if you want to be a professional screenwriter, you have to think about what the marketing department can sell. But I really have pretty much never thought about that. So there are so I want you to talk a little bit about the the, well, the, the screenplays that you you wrote that didn't get made. And you know my experience was different, right? My first spec screenplay which came out of an obsession when I was a degenerate poker player. Dave and I wrote it and it got made, you know? And so my experience with all this stuff was just different. Um, right. And I, and I think honestly, like the counterfactual is like, what if rounders didn't get made? And then you wrote half a dozen or a dozen screenplays that also didn't get made. Would at some point you've started to wonder what the marketing department thought of things? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, you know, that's I don't the know because when I've had no, but I, I go the other way, right? When I've had cold periods, as everybody does, and yes, it's different because I always got movies made. But when I've had cold periods, and the coldest one was before Billions, I, you know, Jeff, no business show had worked. And every business show that ever got made was like two episodes and out. And nobody wanted to make, I mean, I could list them for you. Like nobody, nobody thought a business story was a commercial idea. We just like were fascinated by these guys and loved it and spent years thinking about it. And like, if there was ever a time that I might've wanted to calculate, maybe it would have been post runner runner when I was in such a cold spot that my agent said, you know, no one will hire you. And the thing that turned it around was this idea that on its surface is not commercial. There is no leading character in the show who you can root for and certainly not the beginning of season one. And so I don't know that I would have gone that way because the way I had defined, because of whatever I was bound up in, like all of us have our own bullshit. For me, the whole point of having a job in this world and not in- And not an accountant world. or a dentist or a, you know. Yeah, not in a corporate world was or like- Or a financier. Yeah, I'm gonna live by my wits based on what I'm interested in. And I'm gonna have the confidence that if I can render that, in some way that's really, really compelling to me, then it'll be compelling to some other group and that might be a small group, but that small passionate group will be enough. By the way, yes, I could just have gotten lucky. I, I, Dave and I could have gotten lucky, the whole thing. Like I, 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 I agree and I understand why it's hard to follow. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's been, you know, it was, um, because I don't understand. The it other, wasn't like yeah, I, I immediately. The other, I don't understand the other th part, which is what I want to ask you. What I don't understand is how to count. Like the part I don't understand is how do you know what someone's going to want a year from now? I can't think that way. I don't understand. I'm not smart enough to think that way. So I can only think about what, you know, what am I curious about? It's very basic. And if I'm curious enough about something to work on it, and it, and it keeps me engaged day after day, then I guess I feel like, well, maybe it'll keep someone else engaged. So right. talk about your process. Well, and this was, um, I, to some extent, I agree with that. And to some extent, you know, it just, I, I would say like, it, if you accumulate enough experiences, if you write the thing that you really love and then you can't get it made, you just start to think differently. And and, and it also made, you know, there's, there's other things like, you know, being, being part of a writing team may make your decision-making process a little bit different than if you're an individual. And, sure. um, uh, and I will also say that once I started writing books, uh, 
it's gotten it's it's become somewhat different in the sense that like right. there's a lot more creative latitude in you know and I've mostly written children's books but so you're sort of constrained in that you need your protagonist kind of needs to be a 12 year old if you're writing a middle grade kids book but beyond that there's a, there's an enormous amount of latitude and the thing that was hugely freeing for me when I started writing books was I no longer had to think like that like I was able to really just pursue stuff that I thought was really yes. interesting and cool but but the process so to take you back to like the screenwriting thing so Dave the Ox does not get made uh, the second thing was a pitch it was called Lab Rats it was about like it was sort of the breakfast club set at a medical testing facility nice. that also did not get made the third thing was a pitch it was basically like a, a comic retelling of Citizen Kane in the tech world where it was like this Bill Gates type, you know, Aspergery guy, um, you know, who, who starts a, a company with a, a much more sort of like uh, charismatic but less technologically competent Steve Jobs type of character. And it's about the relationship of the two of them. And, I, and, and that was called Smart and Smarter, um, huh. which, yeah. which I really love, which didn't get me. And then there was, um, then there were a couple of rewrites I did. And then there was a, an adaptation of a Brian Burroughs nonfiction book about the joint U.S.-Russian missions to the Mir space station, which was just like a really dark, um, you know, it, like a comedy, like a deadly comedy of errors where like nobody actually died in reality, but it's, it's a miracle that nobody did. So where are you when, and then we'll get to Lincoln Wood, uh, but where are you when you write Daddy Daycare? Because that's the thing that made you, right. that broke you open and made you a, a real you know, figure in the business. So you've written 14 things that don't get made. Some sell, some don't. But what's going on in your head? Where are you in your life? And, and what are you feeling about the business? So this is what happened. And this is also like, the thing about Daddy Daycare was it was the first, it was, I think it was my 14th script. It was the first one I ever wrote that if somebody else had written it, I would not have paid money to see it in a movie theater. That's funny. Yeah, just based, but, but, but that said, it also came from like sort of real life experience, which was, um, it was uh, like, we had a kid. I had a kid, it was about, um, you know, my son was born in 2000. And the, I, I think he was about probably he, he must have been less than a year old when I had the idea, because I remember very vividly, I was, he was sitting in his bouncy seat. I was sitting on the floor of the kitchen. Um, I'm, I'm watching him in his bouncy seat, and I'm on the phone with Matt Berenson, who was a film producer and, and, and has a very good friend of mine. And we were just, we were like, we were spitballing, like, what's a good comedy idea? And the thing is, at this point, what I had, what I had sort of internalized uh, on this experience, and by the way, I left out like the absolutely best script I've ever written, which was, except for maybe Dave the Ox, which is called Founding Fathers, and is the story of the, the Revolutionary War if all the Founding Fathers got involved for incredibly selfish reasons. Huh. Uh, it, like, couldn't be more proud of it. Like, it, it, it was sort of Monty Python for the Revolutionary War. The number of people who've been interested in it over the years and run up against the brick wall of, like, it's just almost impossible to get historical comedies made is crazy. I've never made a nickel on it because it just it went out as a spec and it never sold and people would get attached and unattached, but it never got made. Anyway, at this point, the, 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 what I had kind of come to realize about the, and this is also about the comedy side of the feature film business 20 years ago, back around 2000. The thing everyone was looking for was 
a high concept idea that you can explain in a sentence or on a poster that will star one of the five comedians that Hollywood would automatically greenlight a movie for right. at, at whatever point in time. And, and that was an interesting list. And it was like every year, like somebody would fall off that list and somebody would get added to it. But it was, there was always usually about just a handful of people like Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Eddie Murphy, who movie studios would definitely make a comedy around. But, but they, all they wanted was that sort of high concept idea, like liar, liar, which is like, you know, compulsive liar is forced to tell the truth or Bruce Almighty, which is, you know, guy gets the powers of God or click, which is, Guy yeah. gets a remote control and he can control his, you know, he can fast forward his life. And so it, 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 there was a pattern of like, if you're trying to actually get a movie made or at least sell a script, because at that point, like I had so many projects that hadn't gone anywhere that the idea that you, you wrote a script and it became a movie was completely abstract. And the only thing that was really important to me was that I stay current in the Writers Guild health insurance system. I was going to ask you, were you <laughs> making a decent living at this time? Well, I had been, but it was drying up because I hadn't gotten a movie made. Right. So, you know, I got paid really well for six projects, but it was increasingly getting difficult. Like I wasn't getting rewrite opportunities because yeah. I just, I hadn't gotten a movie made, right? So I got cold. And, um, and so, so Matt Berenson and I, to get back to Daddy Daycare, I'm sitting on the floor, you know, looking at my kid in the bouncy seat, and we're trying to come up with an idea like this that his boss, who was John Davis, uh, that his boss would like. And I had this idea and I literally, I, it, this thing came to my head and I told Matt, I said, I have an idea, but I don't want to tell you what it is because you're going to make me write it. Wow. And he said, what is it? And I said, guy loses his job, has to open a daycare center in his home. And it was just like, I, 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 I was literally like, I didn't, I, I, as I was saying it, I was like, oh, this is kind of gross. Oh. But it was also, it was, it was my life in the sense, like I only had one kid at the time, but my wife was pregnant and um, she had gone back to work, although she later kind of left work once, once daddy daycare got made right. and, and I was kind of the sole breadwinner for about the better part of the decade. But, um, you know, it was, it was really like, it, it was, it was a thing I had sort of lived through because I had been doing well as a screen, as a screenwriter and then I wasn't, and then we didn't even have full-time childcare and I was literally taking care of my kid half the time because I didn't have anything else going on. And so and when you got the idea, what did you do when you got the idea? Wrote it on spec. Um, you decided not to pitch it because you knew it felt like a good idea to you, a good enough idea that it was worth fleshing out without anybody else's opinion. I honestly can't remember why we didn't write it on spec except, or why we didn't pitch it, except possibly this was, I think this was post 9-11. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and the idea that I would fly to Los Angeles sure. freaked the shit out of my wife. Um, and I may have the timing on that wrong. I may have actually started writing it before then. But so but, you write the spec and, and as you're writing it, do you, do you know you're, you're changing your life or no? No, not at all. I, I honestly, like, I literally thought I was like, well, maybe we'll be able to sell this and I'll, I'll get a little money and I'll get another year of healthcare. Right. <laughs> like that was literally, that was what the thought process was. And, and the spec went out and it didn't sell. Really? Like, yeah, it didn't sell. And I was, I was at the point where I was literally like, you know, I think I had already asked Matt, I was like, do you think we could get John to just kick me some money out of his discretionary fund right. for this? Because I spent, you know, I spent a year working on it and off and on and, you know, and I'm, and I'm kind of getting nothing for it. And then, but John, and this is what makes John Davis a successful producer. 
John got it to Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy said, I want to make this movie and I want to make it this year. Wow. Because he wanted, he wanted his, you know, he wanted his 20, 25 million or whatever he was so getting for the movie. So who buys uh, it? Well, this is weird. Fox bought it. That was where John had his deal. Fox bought it, but flipped it over to Revolution and Turnaround because Fox bought it, but they had cheaper by the dozen in development and they knew they were going to shoot it later that year. And so they already had their family film, their family comedy slot. So they didn't, they didn't want to do it for another year. And Eddie was like, no, I want to make it now. So Fox let, you know, let them set it up and turn around and they sold it and they set it up with revolution and revolutions who made the movie. And so like, literally I got the call that Eddie was wanted to do it in, I think it was March and we were shooting by August. So let me ask you this question. What did it, and I know you were rewritten and then you came back and wrote all that, but what did it feel like the first time you met him or when you actually were there and like got to see the set and they were actually finally shooting a movie you wrote? On the one hand, it was awesome. And I, rem I remember being at one point because I, I got, you know, I got rewritten, but then they brought me back to do some production rewrites. And the thing you have to understand, though, is this is the, this is the movie that I, I was never like I, I when I had the idea, I didn't get excited. <laughs> like I, I had the idea and I was like, yeah, you're going to make me write this. Like I wasn't that I was never that excited about it just conceptually. So it was I always had kind of mixed feelings about it. But I do remember, you know, being in a cubicle doing a rewrite at the, at the production office and hearing the guy in the next cubicle over um, who was the transportation coordinator, like lining up a couple of semi trucks. Nice. Yeah. And it was like, holy shit. Like the thing I wrote is th they now need some semi trucks. Yep. <laughs> so that was cool. But it, yeah, but it was, but it was also, um, it was leavened by the fact that I wasn't terribly proud of it. And, and when I ultimately saw the movie, I was like, Oh, like it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. Cause, and, and to go back, the whole reason I became a writer was because I wanted to have that experience. If you create something and people tell you it's awesome. And, and that was the, and that had been when I became a screenwriter that got severed for about six or seven years where right. I would write the thing and sometimes I get paid for it, but it never appeared in front of an audience. So I never had that. I never had that experience. And then the thing that was really crushing was daddy daycare came out and it's not like people were calling me and telling me how amazing it was. Instead, there were like reviews from Roger Ebert that were savage. And so what had happened was I created something and I put it out in the world and, and the result of it was I got a bucket of shit dumped in my head. Well, except it was a hit movie. Yeah, but it didn't. The fact that it was a hit movie did not make it feel good. Right. Um, well, we're going to jump, though. It get, Yes, I understand that, though. It you know gave you a huge second lease on a career. Well, it did within very narrow parameters, which was I then became known as and, and the Daddy Dicker was the first movie I'd written the first screenplay I'd written. It was a family film. I'd never written a family film before that. I'd written 13, 14 screenplays. Um, but then it became like, that's the only thing that I could, that anybody was interested in before. So I ultimately wrote, I think I wrote about 25 screenplays, five of them were family films and four of the family films got made. Yeah. It's weird. You're good at this thing that you don't really like. Um, and, uh, I could see that. And so this brings us to the change in your career, which we'll go through. And 
I, I, I don't think I played a large role in it, but I, I, I was there as you were figuring out what you wanted to do when the film thing started to become stale for you. Yeah, that was like, when did we have that lunch? That was like 2008 well, or nine. Before you wrote the kids' books, right? Yeah, it was before I started writing books because I was literally to point, I mean, I was, you know, um, well, there came a point after the writer's strike when it just, Hollywood, like the screenwriting business had really changed. And, you know, two-step deals were all were becoming one-step deals. Uh, the spec market had basically disappeared. You know, movie studios like Disney was going from we're making 35 movies a year to we're making 12 movies a year. And most of those are Marvel or Star Wars movies. Hey, man, it, March 9th, 2007. <laughs> nice. Was it really? No, was it really that? Was it that 2009, March 9th, March 9th, 2009. 2009. That March makes a lot 9th, more sense. Uh, well, you wrote me on, you wrote me and said, good seeing you Friday on March 9th. So perhaps it was March 7th. Amazing. And that, but that's 2009, right? 2009. Yeah. 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 That was, that was, cause that was the point at which the writer's strike had been over for a year or a year or two. And it, it was becoming clear to me. I was, I was getting close to 40 that like I could maybe keep the screenwriting thing going for a few more years, but I wasn't going to be 50 years old and writing screenplays full time. Cause it just, it, it just, and also I was just completely burned out because I'd spent the better part of a decade sort of locked in this, in this creative box of, I have to come up with a high concept idea that is explainable in a sentence that can star one of these five people. Right. And this is where I want to be really clear with everybody. I've never once done that. Just so you know, there are two projects. <laughs> I've, to this day, I've had a career even longer than Jeff's and I've still never done that. So like meaning I'm older, so I started before Jeff. So either of these approaches, I guess, can, can work because mine I know seems to him like an impossibility and his seems equally impossible. I could just never start that way. I don't understand. Well, I didn't even, I mean, again, I, I came to that over time. Yes. You know, there, yes. And, and that was also, and that was applicable to the way that I understood the film business to be. So that yeah. once I started writing books, I stopped thinking like that. Well, so we and have I, this lunch, we have this lunch where you're talking about feeling like you don't know how to do the work anymore. Well, I had a terrible case of like, I guess I would call it writer's block. Yeah. Um, and, but, but part of it, this was the, this was the fascinating thing. So like daddy daycare gets made. And by the way, we skipped over the part where like I got fired from the sequel the morning after the premiere, which was another yeah. really, that felt great. Um, but I, I wound up in therapy for the first time in my life. Um, and because I was like, you know, I was, I, had to, I was supporting a family of five with my screenwriting. The screenwriting wasn't going well. I, I felt completely creatively dead inside. And I would unpack. And I had a similar, you know, I don't want to go into all the details, but like RV was the same kind of thing where it's like, there was a point at which I was actually really, really excited about that screenplay. But then it got rewritten by other people. And there was like, things happened to it that just, just really made me feel awful. So you got, you got sober, but you never, I don't want to talk about the whole sobriety thing, but get lost in that, but you got sober, but you didn't do therapy when you got sober. No, this was, um, the therapy actually preceded the, uh, the therapy was, cause I, I had pure, I had a period of sobriety in the, in the late nineties around the time I, I, I started being a screenwriter and then was kind of on and off the wagon through this entire period. And right. I think I got sober for good in 2007. 
Okay. And so I was in, I was in therapy at one point because I was sort of, it it was the point in my, in, in my experience with, with substance abuse where I was desperate to do anything except like the 12 step process, (laughs) which by the way, ultimately became the thing that is like, you know, kind of saved my life. And I'm I'm so glad, you know, I, I, I have nothing but awesome things to say about it. And I, to this day participate, you know, regularly in, in, in 12 step recovery. Um, but I, I was, I was, I was, I gone into therapy and I was, and I was talking to the therapist about, you know, I'm like, I was basically like, I'm creatively dead. And, and she said, well, the way that you describe all of these experiences of getting a movie made is that they're very negative emotional experiences for you. So do you think it's possible that you just don't want to repeat the negative, that you, you're having trouble writing because you don't want to repeat the negative experience right, of what so happens right. after the movie gets made? Yeah, well, it was very smart, but it was also like, well, shit, now what am I going to do for a job? <laughs> you know, she's just explained to me why I can't do right. my job anymore. Um, and so I think we had lunch uh, at, the, at the point at which I was like, I knew I needed something besides screenwriting. I had not quite yet psychologically made the jump to like, well, maybe I could write books and, and, and that's a thing that could work. Uh, and, then, and then the thing you did was you told me to do the artist's way. Yes. Which, and if I recall correctly, you were like, go get the book. No, don't even get the, you don't even need to get the book. Just get up every morning and write longhand for a half an hour. I said, you only need the first two chapters of the book. That's what I said. And I was like, and yeah, I told you what the morning pages were. I said, if you just do this, because you're a writer, you'll find the thing you want to write. Because what I remember was, you were like, I just don't know how to do this anymore. What I want to do. And I said, three longhand pages a morning, like Julia Cameron says. And it was amazing to me when you then so soon wrote these books and started completely changing your identity and your, you know, your professional identity and just publish book after book, after book, after book, really incredible. Well, it's a much like, it's a much less fraught process. And part of it, part of it is it's less fraught because the audience is smaller. So the stakes are smaller, right? Like, like nobody has to hire a couple of giant semi trucks. <laughs> in order to, to publish your book. Right. Um, uh, but, and, and again, it was, it's just, it's, it was a very creative, you know, it was a very creatively freeing process because the, the sort of the, you know, the first book I wound up writing was, um, it was sort of like a, a darkly funny adventure story, um, you know, set in a, in a kind of a fictional universe that, that was very similar to the Caribbean of like the 16 or 1700s. And it was the kind of thing where it was like, I, I was still, I had enough of a foot in the, in the screenwriting business where when I, I started thinking about it, I was like, I really like this idea. If I write it as a spec script, nobody will buy it. Right. And, and I was like, well, but maybe I could write it as a, you know, maybe I could write it as a kid's book and I could build it around, you know, a 13 year old kid. And that brings, and those decisions are less sort of, as you said, calculated because this brings us to where we are now, which is you're about to publish and you sold, you know, you sold to a great publisher, this terrific novel that is not an overtly commercial item, meaning it's not something that you looked at, even though you hit the timing amazingly well in that it's metaphorically so on with everything that went on with hoarding and the pandemic, but, uh, you didn't, uh, have, you didn't know that was coming exactly, and, and you wrote it. So what made you want to write uh, the, the new book, uh, Lincolnwood? What, what made you want to write this book? 
Well, I, I, I should say at the outset, so it's, it's, called, it's called Lights Out in Lincolnwood, and it's the story. It follows a family of four in, in a wealthy New Jersey suburb over the, the 72 hours after uh, the entire technological infrastructure of modern society mysteriously collapses on a random Tuesday morning. Uh, and, you know, it's like, and, and things really go to hell fast. It's like the, the sort of, you know, the, one of the primary questions in the book is like, you know, it's like how far is your typical wealthy suburb removed from barbarism? And, you know, and the answer is about like eight to 12 hours, really. Like, so, you know, so yeah, very quickly, like the Whole Foods get looted and, yeah. you know, the, a, a militia forms among the soccer dads and, and, and things go to hell and it's all happening around this family of four who were sort of, when the book starts, are, are struggling with, you know, what they consider very serious problems like the daughter's college application, and, you know, dad's got work issues. Mom has a substance abuse problem, which is the actually of, of the family problems. It's the only one that's, that's truly serious. Um, and then they have, but they, and they have to figure out, they have to sort of balance, like, how much, how much do I need to worry about, you know, the things that I think I'm supposed to worry about? How much do I need to worry about getting drinking water? Um, and, and so that was, uh, and it was a story like, again, it's like, it's a, it's a dark comedy and dark comedies are a little bit of a hard sell uh, in the, in the larger universe. But it was, it was a book that I wrote basically because I've now gotten to a point where I can afford to calculate a lot less because my kids are now mostly out of the house. College is paid for and, and writing can actually be, it's, it's less of a, it can be less of a business and more of a call. And, and I had kind of resisted writing a book for adults out of, out of this fear of like, well, the, the, the ideal book that I want to write for adults is not going to be for everybody. Right. So, it, you know, and I could, I, ultimately I did, I spent like probably about a year and a half on this book. I did a lot of research. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't a small undertaking and, you know, the, the advance was not terribly large, but I'm at a point in my life where it, that was okay. So, so I'm actually kind of able now, the thing that's nice about where I'm at now creatively is I, I, can, I can kind of afford to take those risks and spend that amount of time on stuff that I really care about. Well, that's awesome. And, uh, and the book is being well published. It's clear that they care about it. You're garnering great reviews. You already got a start reviewing Publishers Weekly. The book reads really fast, even though, you know, what it was about wasn't something I was too into when you first sent it to me because of where we were in the world. But well, yeah, it was it, really funny. It, it was a weird thing where like, you know, I was right. I wrote it in 2019 and, and it's essentially about the apocalypse. And, and I did have, I had this weird sense of, I was like, I should, I should write this fast because what if like really bad shit happens before the book gets published and then nobody's going to want to read it. And what, it, what it, it turned out that like really bad shit happened and not, not just really bad shit, but really bad shit that is actually in the book. So yeah. You know, between the, you know, between the, the, the sort of like my neighborhood in, in, in May of 2020 got looted, um, which happens in the book, uh, the, you know, the, the, the suburban white guy armed insurrection of January 6th basically has its analog in the book. Then, and then the Texas power and water outages in February were like ex right out of the book. So it's, it's, it's a weird thing where there's this like current events bingo card playing out in the plot, which, you know, may, it, it makes it both more timely and possibly like less, less appetizing. Well, it also tells me that maybe you misspent your, this whole career. You should have been planning scenarios in the state department to help the world instead of doing this, because 
You knew exactly what was going to happen, dude. It was a little eerie. The, the, the most eerie thing is I was going through, I was doing the rewrite in the middle of uh, the middle of the pandemic. And the only, the only thing I, I wound up sort of replacing the, the subplot involving the 16 year old son, but I left almost everything else intact. And, and there's a line of internal monologue toward the end of the book where the dad thinks to himself, what if we run out of toilet paper? And I wrote that like four months before the toilet paper shortage. Amazing. <laughs> and there was a moment I was like, should I make more of that? And then I was like, no, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just going to leave that as it is. Well, uh, everyone should go out and get the book. Your story is super inspiring because truthfully, you just never quit. You kept going even with disappointments and, uh, you know, you've come a long way from the town you grew up in. And uh, I'm really pleased with your success. And you've come a long way from that lunch that we had in 2009, man. When I think about where you felt, I remember you saying you felt pretty much tapped out. You weren't sure if you had it in you to like kind of, you know, muscle well, up. And I, and I was tapped out. I was, I was tapped out for writing the thing, the thing that I was writing at the time, which was, you know, uh, but you didn't know comments. there was another thing yet and you were you were, weren't sure you could muscle up to do more and and uh you know it just brought me great joy watching this second section of, of i'm not gonna say half because it's still going the second section of of your career and your in your creative life and uh we didn't even get to argue on this podcast about which version of black sabbath was the best or, or which drive by truckers record we like the best so we can just take that back to our personal lives to argue about um the, the only thing i'll say on that is you're dead wrong about black sabbath i know that you think that and and that's okay that you think that it, um, it saddens me that you think the do years were somehow superior to the eyes of years yeah that's okay heaven and hell's the best black <laughs> sabbath album um oh god that's all that's all I'm so wrong. i love black sabbath i love all their records with ozzy but um but I mean, 13, I don't love, but I love all the records with Ozzy. But I, but uh, for me, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules are the two best Sabbath records by far. By oh far. Oh my God. I'm not alone in this either, Jeff Rodkey. I am not no, alone. No, you're, you're, you're in a minority. A vocal, loyal, passionate minority. Dead wrong minority. <laughs> all right, everybody, you can find Rodkey. Are you, what social media are you on? Where do you live on social media? Um, I mean, all the usual suspects. Twitter, Under your name? Instagram, Jeff Rodkey. Yeah. All right. You can find him there. Jeff is with a G. G-E-O-F-F. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Mom and Dad. Yeah. Really helpful for you, I know. And all right, everybody, you can find Rocky there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. And uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>